Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Morning. Uh, so we're starting a new series today, and I get the privilege to introduce it, and I'm very excited about that, as I'm excited about every series that has anything to do with the Bible. Uh, so I'm, I'm really pumped for this one, and the series title is called The Chief End of Man. Uh, and some of you already know where that phrase is kind of coined from, uh, being the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, but for some of you who maybe you're not so familiar with the terminology uh, as to what the chief end of man would mean, I'd like to define that really quickly. Uh, essentially what it means is that we are looking at the reason for the existence of mankind. Right? That there's a purpose for which we exist, and we want to recognize that. And so over the next five weeks... The series we're looking at is the reason or the purpose for which God created us. Because there's a lot of mixed mentality as to what that might be. Uh, and some people thinking that maybe heaven didn't seem right without us or some various thing. But in reality, what we know about the person of God is that he is self-sufficient in and of himself without need for anything outside of himself, right? In, <clears throat> in the Holy Trinity, God himself needs nothing outside of himself. We don't add to him. If anything, we're little parasites that just pull from him. Life. Because he's eternal and forever with perfect harmony and love inside the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as we look at what the chief end of man is, when we look at our, the reason for our existence, we need to understand that we are not the center of it. And that's what I hope to elaborate on today. And so I do want to look at a couple of things from Scripture that would define what our chief end or our purpose really is. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, For through him, being Christ, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him for him there is nothing at all that exists that is not existing for Jesus Christ nothing nothing there's no spiritual power that is not existing for his very purposes the devil himself is nothing more than a pawn in his hand in which God our creator is using everything that he means for evil for good everything will exist for his purpose without question and none can thwart his plan revelation chapter 4 verse 11 the worship in heaven if you remember it goes like this you are worthy O lord our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they existed because you created what you pleased. So let me just remind you where you're sitting in your seat right now. If you're currently existing, right, if we want to go back to some philosophy, I think, therefore, I am. If you're currently thinking and thus are existing, you're existing because right now God wants you to be existing. And that's for his purposes, not your own. And so we want to look at what exactly that looks like. 
Uh, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to present to you the theme that I'm really just pulling. I didn't make this up. Uh, I just pulled it from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, but the theme that's going to follow all the way through the series. When we look at the purpose of man or the chief end of man, this is what we're saying. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so we need to see exactly what that looks like. So what I'm going to do is we're going to look at Psalm chapter uh, 145. That's hard to say. Psalms is the only book that goes in the hundreds. Uh, we're going to look at Psalm 145, verses 8 through 13. And I'm going to read it, and then what we're going to do is we're going to go through it sort of piece by piece, because essentially David has given us a very perfect flow of thought in this short passage as to what exactly the chief end of man looks like in our lives. And so this is what David writes, Psalm 145, verses 8 through 13. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. All of your works will thank you, Lord, and your faithful followers will praise you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom. They will give examples of your power. They will tell about your mighty deeds and about your majesty and glory in your reign. For your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, your rule throughout all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is gracious in all that he does. So as we look at this, I want to break this down almost verse by verse in five points as to what David is showing us. And where he starts out in verse 8, the first thing David does is he shares with us his praise begins. And this is important, right? If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then we need to understand what's the root and foundation of that. Here's where David begins. David begins with a revelation of what, uh, 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 God's revelation about himself, right? And that's important. Here's what David doesn't do, right? We're in a pluralistic culture. Here's what David doesn't do. David does not say, this is how I feel like the Lord is. David begins with God's own revelation of himself in verse 8. And all he's doing is quoting, Eze uh, not Ezekiel, I'm sorry, last sermon. Uh, he's quoting Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. If you remember the story, when God reveals himself to Moses, when he passes before Moses, this is what the Lord says about himself. Exodus 34 the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, The Lord, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love on thousands of generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Da David is taking a direct quote from Scripture about what God says about himself He's using God's own revelation. We have to begin there. If we want to glorify God, listen, if you go around to people, let's say, let's say you want to tell people how great you think I am, which I'm not, but if that were the case, right? And you go around and you share all these facts about me that have nothing to do with me. You're not glorifying me. 
You're glorifying some glorified version of me that you would like to have existing that's not me at all. And so it is with God. If we're going to live a life that glorifies God and enjoys him, we need to make sure that it's according to God's own revelation of himself. We do not, as creatures, we do not have the right to try and create a God in our own image. He is who he is, whether you like that or not. And so God reveals himself through the scriptures and praise him that he does. God reveals himself through the scriptures. And then what's interesting about it is you actually see in Exodus 34, you actually see what the natural response should be, right? For any of us in this room who have experienced the Lord, we've experienced his glory, there should be a very natural response. Listen to what Moses does after. Very next verse. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground in worship. And for some of us, we're like, I don't know about this whole throwing to the ground. Then go back to Revelation 4. Go back to any of the praises in Revelation where the, the 24 elders are on the throne. What are they continually doing? They're not just sitting in their chairs worshiping with a hand up. They're falling on their faces before him and casting their glory at his feet. Why? Because they cannot handle the presence of the one who is seated on that throne, it is too glorious. It's too majestic. They can't help but to celebrate him. When God reveals himself to people, our natural response is that we want to celebrate him because he's so good, he's so loving, he's so gracious, he's so perfectly just, he's so holy. We even see that that's actually what God is looking for. If you remember the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, listen to what Jesus says. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. The Father is seeking after them. God is looking, listen, he's not just looking for a lot of intellectually uh, adapt people. He's looking for people who are worshiping, right? I heard a phrase that goes like this, that if you have theology without doxology, it's just dead intellectual knowledge. Everything we grow to learn and come to experience about the person of God should be producing worship in our lives. Otherwise, this is just a dry academic textbook. Our purpose begins with knowing God according to his word. Always according to his word. Then in verse 9, David moves forward to his experience, right? Because God's not just far off in the heavens, wrote a book for us and said, read it. He's also very present with us. And we experience him. And, and what David does in verse 9 is he, as he looks upon the creation, as he looks at his own life, listen to what he says in verse 9. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. That's observational. David's seeing that. And he's worshiping God because of it. And so David experiences and observes the character of God. God is who he is without question. But God is personal. God is personal. And we know elsewhere, uh, Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. What does David call us to do? Listen to this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Listen, 
I love steak. I do. You make a ribeye, that's, that's the way to my heart. You cook me up a ribeye, know that I like it rare. You bring it up here and you set it on this table. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to go, man, that thing looks so good, right? I'm like a lion. I'm going to move around it. Like I might pounce on it, but I'm going to look at this steak and I'm going to see that it's good. And you know what the next step is? Ah, there we go. I'm going to cut a little piece off and I'm going to taste on it. And that's how I really know. I can observe it and I can see that it's good. The next step is to experience it. David doesn't just say, look at the book and see that he's good. He says, come taste and see. Come see for yourself who he is. Come see for yourself how good he is. And God reveals himself so intimately. And that's such a beautiful thing. I don't know uh, if you're familiar with the story of Elijah the prophet, right? First Kings chapter 19. Y'all remember the story when God reveals himself to Elijah, how it all went down? The first thing is this giant wind that's actually breaking stones off the mountain, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. Then following that is this earthquake that shakes everything, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then after that, a fire, a blazing fire. You know what else it says? Lord wasn't in that. Where was he? In the whisper. Why the whisper? Because if I put this mic down right now and I whisper, a couple of you up front are going to hear me because you're close to me. You guys back there won't know anything I just said. A whisper is up close and personal. A whisper is intimate. Our gigantic, magnificent, infinite, eternal God, intimate with us. If you don't believe me, sit down with Psalm 139 and just meditate for years because it's rich on God's intimacy toward his people. We know God according to his word, and then we experience the God who wants to experience us. And let me just say this. David, David saw so much of the goodness of God, but he doesn't see it anything like what we get to see it. You see, we sit on the other side of the climax of all history when God himself came down from his throne in the form of a man Though equal with God did not consider that a privilege to be held on to, but came down among sinful creation, among rebels and haters of God. And he walked with us, and he taught us, and he healed us, and he told us all about the kingdom of heaven. And then he went on a cross, and he bore the wrath and the curses that we deserve. David couldn't even understand that the way we see it. And yet David experienced God in a way that, that provoked praise. Do you? Do you understand where we sit? That at any given moment, any given moment, you can go to Matthew and just start reading about everything our God has come to do intimately in our lives. And you can rejoice, do you? Do you see him in the person of Christ? Bearing your sin on that cross, laying down his life, being separated from God so you could be reconciled. Thirdly, what follows is thanksgiving, praise, and eulogy. Verse 10, thanksgiving, praise, and eulogy. And I'm just going to say this, this is only fitting. That's only fitting, right? 
I don't know if you guys have ever been in a moment where something is really amazing that you get to experience. I remember uh, going to New Mexico and going to the Rio Grande Gorge and just standing there and looking at it. I didn't even have words. I'm just staring. I'm like, this thing is so much more giant than anything I've ever imagined, right? And then all I could do was talk about it after. I'm like, can you believe it? Like, all I want to do is go down in it. So deep, it's so giant. Right? When we experience things that are great, we have a natural reaction. That natural reaction is to praise it. You ever go to a show that you really enjoy, what's the natural reaction? Get up and clap. I don't know why clapping. That's such a weird thing we do. But we slap our hands together showing that we enjoyed something. The natural reaction, anytime we come across something that is good, that is glorious, worship always follows. Thanksgiving, praise, and eulogy. Coming from the New Testament perspective, David says this, or not David, I'm sorry, see, I'm stuck. Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united in Christ. How does that begin? All praise to God. Why? Why? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, all of them, and he did it in Christ. And if you follow that up, verses 4 through 14 in Ephesians 1, Paul's going to start laying out what those spiritual blessings look like. And I'm just going to say this, above and beyond comprehension. If you really believed those things with all your heart, you would be erupting and exploding in praise uncontrollable. Paul says all praise to God. And what's funny is that Greek word that I'm not even going to try and say, uh, but it's where we get our word eulogy. Eulogy meaning to speak highly of. That God has done so good to us that we can't help but to speak highly of him. We can't help it. And you know what's funny about it, though? Even if God did nothing good for you ever, he's still worthy of it. If you get you, listen to me, if he, if he threw you in hell for all of eternity, he's still worthy of all of your praise and all of your service in this life. He's worthy of it. But this goes far beyond. You have to understand, when we're talking, when we're talking about Thanksgiving praise and eulogy, it has to go far beyond just singing. It has to. Do you know how easy it is to get up and sing songs that your heart is not engaged in? You know how easy it is to speak words, right? You always hear talk is cheap. It is. Talk is so cheap. Christ himself said to the Pharisees, what did he say? You're a bunch of hypocrites. You draw near to God with your lips while your hearts are far from him. They had every right answer. Their heart was never engaged. They never loved the Lord. John Piper has a quote that I absolutely adore. He says this. He says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. We go because we want to be in awe of something greater than ourselves. You want to know what worship really is? You want to know what thanksgiving, praise, and eulogy is all, really all about? It's about awe. It's about that passage, I believe it's Luke 10 maybe, I might be wrong, where Martha and Mary invite Jesus to the house. Y'all remember the story? Martha's serving, 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 running around, running around, running around, do, 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 do. Mary just sitting and gazing. Can't take her eyes off Jesus. 
hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And it's funny, Isaiah 52 says he wasn't even attractive. There was nothing about him that would draw us to him. But Mary saw something glorious. Martha. No, Mary, yeah. Martha gets mad, right? Lord, I'm over here working all this stuff. She's just sitting there doing nothing. Are you not going to rebuke her? Get her up to help me. What does Jesus say? Martha, Martha. You're busy with so many things, but what Mary has chosen is the only thing that matters, and that will not be taken away. It scares me how many of you guys, you've got your daily quiet times, your prayer life, all these various things, but your heart's never been engaged in it. Are you in awe of him? I heard a guy say once uh, on the subject of burnout in ministry, he said, you're not burned out, you just lost your awe of who God is, and I was like, Oh, it's so true. Worship begins with awe. And let me tell you this right now. You, you crave wonder. You crave to be in awe. You need it because you were created to be sitting in the presence of the infinite and eternal triune God in absolute wonder forever. We were created to be in awe. Experience of God should be producing celebration. It should be producing celebration in your life. And what follows that, verses 11 and 12, is that we're proclaiming his deeds and his kingdom. Right? Because if you're in awe of something, remember what I said, if you're in awe of something, you can't help but to talk about it. Everybody I've ever known that gets into keto for the first time, they can't stop talking about keto. Our Lord and Savior keto, right? It's all you hear about. All these diet fads that people lose a lot of weight and they're like, man, I can't believe it. They'll tell everybody. Comes up in every conversation. Because when we're in awe of something, we want to talk about it. We want to talk about it. We testify of his goodness. Listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15. If someone asks about your Christian hope, always, always be ready to explain it. Always. Why? Because your mind is so fixated on the glory of it that you can't stop thinking about it. And so at any given moment, you're just ready. You're just ready to explain what's going on. I have people ask me, they go, Daniel, how exactly do you open the door to share the gospel with unbelievers? Like, what should I do? And I said, man, you know it's a really good approach? that your very character and the excellence of your work is so utterly different from anyone else's that they have to know why you are the way that you are. And then you go, oh, let me tell you. My Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you share that gospel with them. What good is it to share the gospel with people when you look no different from everybody else? You are redeemed for holiness. You were saved for excellence, to not look like the rest of the world, but to have the aroma of Christ. Do you? When people look at your life, do they see that? Or do you just look like everybody else? I'm gonna say this, that very thing should be woven into your salvation. 
woven into the very DNA of it. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. Why? He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You are God's masterpiece. In the Greek, I got this from Jesse. I'm kind of jealous about that, that I didn't figure that one out first. But the Greek word for masterpiece is poema. It's where we get the word poetry. What is poetry? Poetry is a passionate, artistic expression of the author of the poem. Paul says you are his poem. You are his poem. That you've been created anew. You've been reborn made a new creation in Christ. Why? So that the rest of the world looks at you and they go, oh my gosh, our God in heaven is so amazing, right? He saves sinners. Are you living, walking poetry? Are you proclaiming his deeds? Speaking of his goodness. Do you understand that all of creation, everything, remember Colossians 1.16, all of creation is a theater of God's glory. It's all proclaiming his power, his goodness, his love, his grace. Are you in line with that? Are you going opposite of the flow of what everything else was intended to do? We should always be proclaiming his good deeds, and his kingdom. And then lastly, his everlasting reign. His everlasting reign. His reign is forever. And as I've said before, none can even challenge that. Man, I can't elaborate that enough because we live in a culture right now where for some odd reason we think Satan has some high amount of sovereignty and God can do nothing about it. What? Would we really lift him up that high? As though God is in the heavens with his hands tied behind his back? Who do you think wanted Christ crucified? Who hated him so badly? Us. And what are we, according to scripture? Children of our father, the devil. We have the same motive, murderers from the beginning. And we intended to crucify the only son of God. And what did God do with that? Brought redemption for our little sinful hearts. Satan only has a little bit of power, and it's the very power God gave him. And if God wanted, he could blink him out without even having to try. It would take absolutely nothing. Nothing. None can challenge him. None. And he promised us, Jesus Christ promised us when he rose from that grave, before he ascended into the heavens 40 days later, do you know what he said? I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And when I do, my kingdom will be established. It will be established. Listen, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14, Old Testament prophecy. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with the awareness of the glory of God. The earth will be filled with it. Filled. There will not, listen, redeemed, redeemed creation, children of God, born again in Christ. When that time comes, 
Do you understand what that's going to look like? A lot of people tell me, they're like, man, I don't know this whole heaven thing. Like, are we just going to sit in circles and sing all day? And I'm like, I don't think that's the point. Uh, I don't think that's giving us a literal vision of what eternity is going to be like. I think it's going to be very different. I think the point is that heaven will be nothing but worship. But I think the reason for that is because you will not be able to look at anything. Anything. Listen. At the time of redemption, when Christ comes, I'll walk outside those doors and I'll look at a rock on the ground and I will explode in praise to the one who created that rock. Why? Because finally, for the first time ever, with absolutely unhindered eyes, I will see the glory of my Christ in every single thing that he created and I will not be able to contain my joy because he's so glorious. Everything we look at, everything, through the farthest reaches of the universe, will be proclaiming the glory of God, and finally, we'll be able to see it completely and fully. I gotta breathe after that one. Man, listen, when he returns, when that kingdom is established forever and ever, all of creation will be under his reign. Will you? Will you? Scripture's very clear. Those who want to challenge his reign, you're not going to be much of a challenge. You're doing one of two things in this life. You're either bowing the knee to the one who's seated on the throne or you're bowing up with your big chest and he's gonna crush you like fine powder when that day comes. You go to Psalm 110, you read what it's gonna be like when he returns, heaping up dead corpses. All those who challenge him will be put to shame. They will. He is the only one who sits on that throne. You will not take it from him. And if you try to, you're the one waging war. And let me also just say this. I've heard people, I've had people ask me this question before. Daniel, what on earth is the point in seeking out all this theology? Like you're gonna have all of eternity to know him, why are you so worried about it now? They didn't get it, obviously. But I just think the reality is this, man, if you don't wanna know him now, you're not gonna wanna know him then. And you think he's going to make you know him? He'll send you to the same place everybody else went that rebelled. It's one of two options in the end. And I can promise you now, if you refuse to repent and believe the gospel now, your mouth will be shut. You will be without excuse. Especially if you're here this morning. You're being given a message and you're responsible for how you respond to it. But I can assure you, his kingdom's coming, and it's going to be established forever. And we proclaim that, that our king will return, that he'll redeem us in full redemption, removing sin completely from the equation, death, the grave, pain, tears, all of it, and we'll reign with him forever. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God to enjoy him forever. 
That's why you exist. That's, that's your very purpose. And though sin has definitely broken that in us, God's love is so great that he sent Christ to restore it. He sent Christ to restore it. And so now the question comes in, what does that really look like? Right? What does that look like in everyday life to do this? Because right now it's kind of like you get done with a sermon like that. If, if you're a believer in the room, man, your, your head's kind of in the heavens, right? You're, you're just kind of in this worshiping state. And that's good because here's the thing. I would never want you to go out there and try and glorify God without first being a worshiper. When we glorify God, it comes from a place of worship. You know why I say that? Because we glorify him by enjoying him. I've never worshipped something I didn't enjoy. I would first want your heart to be elated with the person of God. But then what do we do after that? Paul has a really interesting uh, verse in Romans chapter 6. If you're familiar with the passage, uh, Paul has kind of given us this explanation as to how Jesus Christ has saved us from the power of sin. That if we have grace, that doesn't mean we continue going on sinning. It wouldn't make sense because we're claiming to be saved from sin. So Paul says this in Romans 6, 13. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. What's your chief end? To glorify God. So use your whole body to the glory of God. And so here's how we're moving forward. Not this morning, but next week. We'll have four parts as we look at what a human being is, right? Paul says use not to let your body be used as an instrument for evil. So what are the main instruments of a human? What are the main instruments? And how do we take those things and use them for the glory of God because you're gonna have sin waging war, right? That's Galatians 5, 17. We've got two natures as a believer. The sinful nature, desiring sin, the spirit in us, desiring righteousness. So how do we put to death that sin and move forward in the spirit? We're gonna look at four things over the next four weeks. Number one, the heart. We'll look at the heart. Two, the mind. Three, the affections. And four, the will. How do we take those four things? How do we subdue them under the rule of Christ? And how do we use them and embrace them to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? So I'm going to pray. And then next week, I'm excited. I'm excited. I don't know where else to go. I'm just going to leave it at that. Father, what a great thing we have in Christ. I'm so thankful that you didn't come to us, a, peop a people just dead in sin, and try and force us into worshiping you when we, by nature, are hostile toward you. But I'm also thankful, Father, that you didn't just sweep us out and crush us when you really you could have. But instead, you sent Christ to redeem us. And in that redemption, you removed our hearts of stone. 
you remove that hostile nature and you fill us with your spirit. And your spirit motivates and animates us to glorify you and to enjoy you according to your word. Lord, there will never, ever, ever, ever be words of worship or words of anything that will ever give you due praise. But I'm so grateful that we will have all of eternity to keep trying to formulate the right words to say. Lord, I pray for our hearts in this room. Your word tells us that every single day sin is attempting to harden our hearts against you. And so we should, with every single day, being encouraging one another in your word and in your truth toward Christ and in his grace. And so I pray, Father, that this time has first and foremost glorified you, that it's provoked the hearts of the hearers into worship. But more than that, I pray that it's softened their hearts from any areas where sin has been working and trying to corrupt and that they've got to experience your grace new today. Make us worshipers, Lord, because you're worthy. We pray this for the praise of Christ and in his name. Amen.